Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this week's periodical podcast, where we're going to discuss the content in our weekly periodical, this week titled The Impact of U.S. Regulatory Bottlenecks on Domestic Production, which we released this past Wednesday, August the 12th. I am joined by the host of the rest of Rare Petro's podcast, Tavis. Hey there. And we're excited to bring you yet another episode. So without further ado, let's get started. The United States domestic oil and gas sector operates in a free market subject to government health, safety, and environmental regulations. While domestic production is encouraged to supply domestic and global energy needs, there's actually no specific government policies promoting further development of such production. There are, on the other hand, policies that attempt to hinder their development. The blockades arised at the local level as domestic onshore oil and gas development is regulated by individual states where the activity takes place. Intervention at the state level can be beneficial as each state can make the decision on how to operate, but at times, the statewide decisions can lead to exploration and production bottlenecks. Regulation for various aspects of an entire industry is similar to the laws placed on individuals in society. Without rules and guidelines, the individual may stray and make poor choices that result in safety hazards or take advantage of others. Therefore, intervention can lead to further development and best practices. But, much like governments imposing unnecessary laws on individuals, too much intervention in the business world can lead to economic barriers of entry that suffocate development and hinder growth. The latter is what domestic oil and gas industry has been experiencing over the past few years. Government regulations have created bottlenecks for additional development and production in the United States oil and gas industry, resulting in hindered growth. This article investigates four different regulations and policy changes implemented, three at a state level and one at a national, to further understand the implications, benefits, consequences, and potential outcomes of legislation. We would like to be clear. All these recent policy changes made at both the national and state levels have been enacted to regulate and further support public and environmental health and safety. Now, for the first bit of legislation we will investigate, it's at the national level. So since we're going to be talking about offshore development, this is actually regulation at a national level instead of a state level. Back in 2019, in September, the House passed two bills blocking oil and gas drilling off the Pacific, Atlantic, and Florida Gulf Coasts, citing environmental concerns including threats to marine, recreation, and fishing. Lawmakers who opposed the legislation argued that banning offshore drilling would harm the country's energy production and place the United States behind global competitors, resulting in a national security risk. Furthermore, oil and gas interest groups say that the bans only increase domestic dependence on foreign oil. These two bills directly oppose President Donald Trump's executive order signed back in 2017 to start a five-year development plan for offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico and on the East Coast. A federal judge later ruled that Trump's order was unlawful because it exceeded the president's authority. As we have stated, the purpose of these regulatory and policy changes is to ensure that the oil and gas industry responsibly, keyword responsibly, produces hydrocarbons while protecting both individual and environmental health and safety. But with these goals, there are oftentimes unintended outcomes as a result of these actions. While banning offshore drilling may ensure clean beaches and prolonged marine recreation and fishing, it limits domestic energy independence and job opportunities in the area. A U.S. ban on new offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, which presidential hopeful Joe Biden promised to enact if elected, would lead to hundreds of thousands of job losses and billions in lost government revenue over 20 years. 
Additionally, if Biden wins the 2020 election, he's promised to ban new offshore drilling, which will discontinue all proposed leasing and future development off U.S. coasts. While these leases are not guaranteed to produce activity or generate additional jobs currently, the opportunity for economic development still exists under administration that supports oil and gas. According to the National Ocean Industries Association, if no new permits are issued in the Gulf of Mexico alone, the offshore industry would have 179,000 jobs in 2040, less than half of the 370,000 jobs it would be projected to support under current policies. Government revenues from the industry, meanwhile, would be $2.7 billion a year instead of $7 billion. This is supported by the fact that last year, drilling in the Gulf of Mexico's outer continental shelf supported 345,000 U.S. jobs and contributed $28.7 billion to the economy. By blocking exploration and production off the Pacific, Atlantic, and Florida Gulf Coasts, the results subsequently eliminate thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in taxable revenue. These waters will be free from new environmental concerns related to the oil and gas industry, but will not reap the economic benefits the industry brings along with it. So, kind of, Tavis, let's recap real quick. So, pros, obviously, offshore jobs, offshore revenue. I mean, look at all that. I mean, that's hundreds of thousands of jobs. So many people employed, lots of money, dumping it back into the U.S. That's fantastic. But then we also have the cons to consider, right? Kind of like you said, dumping, you know, the potential Oops. of dumping, <laughs> dumping oil into the ocean. You know, think back at that, you know, recent blockbuster that was released, you know, Deepwater Horizon. Very historically accurate. Actually, the movie in and of itself, you know, on an engineering standpoint was also pretty accurate, which was pretty cool. Um, but, I mean, that's not the only one. You've got the Exxon Valdez oil spill. I mean, there's been spills in the past, but, I mean... You kind of, it's, it's one of those, you know, you know, take a little bit, you know, leave a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. how much are you willing to let your, n not only national, you know, economy suffer, but also your state level economy suffer. I mean, that's billions of dollars in taxable revenue that goes directly to your state. And it may seem callous to say this, but I see that benefit that you just mentioned to far outweigh the occasional spill. Granted, I, <laughs> it's hard to say that because I, no one wants to see a spill. Nobody wants to see several thousands, hundreds of thousands of barrels spilled out on the water, but I think I think the pros definitely outweigh the cons. You just have to try and mitigate it so that the cons don't occur as frequently as some would like to believe. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there, there's another little fun fact I found here that actually oil companies have drilled five wells off the Atlantic Florida state waters and then 51 exploratory wells in federal leases on the outer continental shelf of the Atlantic coast but none of these are actually producing wells. They actually weren't able to find enough economic oil to produce out there. But that being said, that sounds like a lot of wells to be drilled without, you know, really producing much. But at the same time, they really haven't had the opportunity to really get out there and explore. So it's, you know, there might be huge amounts of reserves out there untapped that could, you know, maybe actually eventually lead to America's energy independence. Who knows? To introduce the second bit of legislation we're going to talk about, we will take it up to the north to the great state of North Dakota. In North Dakota, the nation's second largest oil producer, the debate on the Keystone and Keystone XL pipeline rages on. Keystone XL is a key project for Canadian oil sands producers that have been hamstrung for years by a lack of pipeline capacity. The stretch of the existing Keystone pipeline transported nearly 40% of North Dakota's oil in the first part of 2020, and the closure of this infrastructure would have a huge impact on companies in the area like Energy Transfer, Phillips 66, Marathon, and Hess. 
The new line would help carry 830,000 barrels per day of crude, along with a 1,200-mile route from the Alberta oil hub in Hardestry to Steel City, Nebraska. From there, the oil would travel to the U.S. Gulf Coast refineries that are geared to process the heavy oil sands crude. The project has been on TC Energy's drawing board for more than a decade after being repeatedly stalled by opposition from landowners and environmentalists who say it will contribute to catastrophic climate change. President Barack Obama rejected the pipeline's border crossing permit in 2015, a decision that Trump reversed shortly after taking office. In recent years, climate change activists have encouraged states and tribes to exercise their powers under Section 401 of the Clean Water Act, giving local authorities the right to review new projects to verify they don't harm local water. Despite support from the White House, the Supreme Court refused to let construction start on TC Energy Corp's Keystone XL oil sands pipeline. They rejected a bid by President Donald Trump's administration to jumpstart the long-delayed project as a result of the Clean Water Act. The act essentially gives states veto power over federal decisions and has hindered the development of this project for years. Furthermore, on August 4th, 2020, a panel of federal judges reversed the court order to shut down and empty the existing Keystone Pipeline of crude, while the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers completes an environmental impact statement expected to take 13 months. Unfortunately, the delays to the Keystone XL Pipeline project, it's, it's just unfortunate. Why? Plain and simple, pipelines are by far the safest way to transport oil from one place to the other. But the path for this controversial oil pipeline has never been smooth. Issues have existed from the time it was proposed back in 2008 through seven years of dogged citizen protests and various conflicting legislative orders by the federal government. Opponents have warned that the pipeline could endanger many animals and their habitats in the United States and Canada through the infrastructure's construction maintenance, and possible failures that could lead to an oil spill. Alternatively, the State Department has estimated, as of January 2014, that 180,000 barrels of Canadian crude oil per day is being transported by freight trains. There is also a significant amount of crude being trucked on a daily basis as well. If no pipeline is built, that number will continue to rise as their production begins to rise as well. Using trains to transport oil to refineries in the United States poses a safety concern because leaks or explosions can actually occur, killing people and then further damaging habitats nearby. While the protection of animals and their habitats is incredibly important for the survival of many species, the safety of human life is paramount. Additionally, opponents to the project argue that the environmentally harmful process of extracting oil from Canadian tar sands will increase if the pipeline is built. While this may be true, the oil extracted from the tar sands will find its way to the market regardless of whether or not the pipeline is built. Therefore, it makes sense to support the transportation method that is the safest for both the people and the environment. Finally, the construction of the pipeline would create 42,100 jobs during the pipeline's construction timeframe of one to two years, and additionally, another 50 permanent jobs. While it's not a lot of long-term job creation, it would help keep the crude oil refineries on the Gulf Coast up and running. If the pipeline is not built, jobs at those refineries could potentially be endangered, especially with a push toward limited crude imports. There are many pros and many cons to this proposed pipeline, and it is no surprise that the project has been delayed so many times. Luckily, the EPA is returning the Clean Water Act certification process under Section 401, as Tavis just discussed, to its original purpose. That purpose? 
to review the potential impacts of discharges from federally permitted projects that they have on water resources, not to indefinitely delay or block critically important infrastructure. Now, Kevin, I really liked what you said earlier. I mean, of course, we've got the sage grouse. We've got small animals we do need to protect. But what about human safety when onloading and offloading all of those hydrocarbons from trains, trucks? Well, yeah. And I mean, did you ever as a kid go up to train tracks and, you know, smush pennies? On oh, yeah. Tra- I used to live next to train tracks for probably the greater part of my childhood. Yeah. I mean, it's it, we probably shouldn't be announcing this <laughs> on a podcast. that Destroying you know. <laughs> federal currency. <laughs> but I mean, even beyond that, I mean, there's been several, you know, cited papers out there that say, you know, please do not do this. It has the potential to derail a train. You know, um, if something as simple as a coin on a train track can derail a train, I mean, that's carrying thousands of barrels of crude oil. I mean, that's an explosion waiting to happen. That's a spill waiting to happen. And that to me is a lot more significant for the environmental impacts than say the construction of a pipeline that, yeah, maybe a year or two of, you know, um, invading that environment, but once the pipeline's done, it's it's done. Mm-hmm. And those trains you mentioned transporting 180,000 barrels per day. Hypothetically, if all of those freight trains were to undergo some catastrophic failure, that is on the magnitude just underneath what Valdez. Was it Valdez? That was, I think, just over 250,000 barrels. So already, that seems pretty damn dangerous to me. I don't know, and I'm sure there's plenty more people and animals involved there versus. In the middle of the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some additional facts on, you know, the safety of pipelines. So about 70% of all domestically produced petroleum products, so we're talking domestic, not necessarily from Canada, um, are transported by pipeline. And yet they still have significantly fewer spills than any other transportation method. So kind of like we said, they carry 70% of crude, but yet they still have 10% fewer spills per year on a numbers basis than trucking, despite having significantly higher volumes. But if you actually look at the ratio of spills to volume, so, you know, volume piped versus, you know, transported in a truck, train, vessel, etc., and number of spills, I mean, pipelines hardly even register on a chart when rail, vessels, and trucking are nearly off the chart. I mean, it's just crazy to think that people wouldn't want to support something that's so safe. Yeah, you can just catch the mistakes so quickly. There's a big pressure change or there's a big volume change and you know between this point and this point, something's wrong. And shut it in like that. Exactly. For our next regulatory bottleneck, we're going to send it over to the place where we've had plenty of regulatory issues in the past. In California, the state regulatory body implemented revisions to the underground injection control, we might call it UIC from here on out, for cyclic steam injection wells for the beginning of 2020. Several major changes to the existing regulations required producing wells to meet the same mechanical integrity and monitoring requirements as injection wells, and it's also restricted projects known to cause surface expressions like injecting into diatomite formations. Now, operators have until April 2021 to implement continuous pressure monitoring on existing cyclic steam and also new wells must have that added prior to first production. These wells also must have periodic casing pressure testing performed by April 2024 with additional mechanical integrity tests and radioactive tracer surveys to detect fluid mitigation every five years. In order for the producing wells to be approved for a UIC permit, an engineering study, a geology study, an injection plan for each well, they all must be approved within the area's well of review. 
That said, areas well of review must include wellbore diagrams, formation details, maps and cross-sections of the project, calculations for fracture pressure, liquid analysis, and be approved by a professional engineer, and be approved by a professional geologist prior to submission to the regulatory board. Once all of these documents are approved for injection, the dates, times, and volumes of each injection cycle must be recorded and kept for as long as the project is approved for injection. <laughs> this is a major step change for cyclic steam wells to meet the new requirements in a short time period, especially since they were not required to record any of that data in the past. And if you're lucky enough to actually get that permit to the governor's desk, it may sit there under, quote-unquote, review for months on end, as we saw last year. Looking at trends over time, oil production in California has been in a steady decline since 1985, and the new injection control requirements will not help that fact. Under the new regulations, at least 55,000 UIC wells are affected. And if these wells are not in compliance with the new policies, injection must be halted until they are in compliance. Due to the many steps involved, it takes the state time to review and approve the necessary documents. As a result, receiving a UIC permit can take a long time, meaning production could potentially be down for an extended period of time as well. Since 75% of the state's crude oil production is from wells affected by the new UIC guidelines, if all wells are not in compliance, state revenues from associated crude oil production will suffer. To add insult to injury, cyclic injections above fracture pressure and diatomite formations is no longer allowed, resulting in a portion of assets with stranded reserves. Not only do these new policy changes have the potential to dramatically reduce production volumes, additional well work is required to maintain regulatory compliance. This will increase operating expense costs for fields, cutting into a company's bottom line. If there is no profit margin, oil and gas companies may choose to abandon operations in the state and shift their focus into areas with less stringent regulations, allowing for increased profit margins. While California is the seventh largest producer in the United States, regulatory changes have the potential to move them much further down that list, endangering countless jobs and revenue from the oil and gas industry that supports the state economy. Now, we talk about California a lot, but a lot of times it seems like it's for good reason, and I totally respect the stance that the state is taking on this and the fact, you know, that they're making a an effort to, you know, make production safer in the state. But, I mean, that long list of requirements, it just, it seems a little overkill. It's counterintuitive at that point. Like uh, we mentioned, state's been in steady decline. If you go into EIA and look at oil production by state, say monthly, all the way back, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Texas, all of those states, well up until coronavirus, were rising. Even after they hit 2015, Pennsylvania and North Dakota, they popped off. But California, steady decline, always trending down, and still trending down. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and I, coronavirus, like you said, hasn't really helped anything, but it kind of, it seems like since 1985, when they hit that peak, you know, when they were the top dogs, ever since then, it kind of seems like, you know, the governments and even the people in California are just slowly trying to push oil and gas out of their state even though so, so, so much, I mean, billions of dollars of their state's budget comes from the oil and gas industry. It's just, to me, like you said, seems counterintuitive. Lastly, we are going to take a look at some new policy changes enacted down in Texas, the largest oil-producing state in the United States. In short, recent policy changes have been enacted to reduce flaring volumes. 
When newly completed horizontal shale wells with huge initial production volumes are brought online, a lot of associated natural gas comes to the surface as well. Due to pipeline capacity or lack of infrastructure in the area, much of the excess natural gas is burned near the wellhead. New regulations state that flaring can only occur during drilling and may not exceed 10 producing days after initial completion, recompletion in another field, or workover in the same field. Gas that must be unloaded from a well may be vented up to 24 hours in one continuous event or up to 72 cumulative hours in a month. Additionally, Gas may be released for up to 24 hours in the event of a pipeline or gas plant upset. Any sort of gas release from a production facility, gathering system, or plant must be reported by the Texas Railroad Commission as soon as possible once it occurs, and a request to flare longer than 24 hours must be submitted within one business day for approval. Such limits on flaring volumes have been put in place to enhance air quality, responsibly produce mineral reserves, and maintain safe operating procedures. So we're actually going to talk about some good news here. So it turns out these new flaring regulations in Texas seem to be the only recent policy changes that have had a beneficial outcome. But, you know, there's an asterisk here that I'll get back to. So during the dual black swan events of the coronavirus pandemic and the price war, crude prices were sent to historic lows, as we know and we've talked about many times before. As a result of the sustained low prices, production has been shut in, Very few new wells have been completed, and almost no new drilling. You know, drilling rigs have all but halted. The outcome? A reduction in oil production. Thus, associated natural gas production has been in decline and subsequently reduced flaring. In fact, since the downturn, the rate of flaring has gone down so much that 99.5% of the gas produced in the month of May was sold and beneficially used to generate electricity, heat homes, cook meals, and make hundreds of other consumer products. Now is the opportune time to implement meaningful recommendations for flaring reductions before oil and gas production returns to previous highs. Unfortunately, it's going to be difficult to keep this progress up as production slowly comes back online. So here's that little asterisk I was talking about. So why is this going to be an issue? Limited pipeline capacity and infrastructure for many areas in the Permian Basin. The major driver for selling 99.5% of that gas produced in the month of May instead of flaring significant volumes was additional capacity in pipelines created by reduced production volumes. Essentially, all those shut-ins de-bottlenecked some of the gas pipeline previously at or near capacity. In order to eliminate unnecessary flaring in the future, additional capacity will be needed to lower volumes moving through the existing systems or continued expansion of infrastructure. Currently, the pipeline network is not prepared for all the extra gas that will be returned to the system once production climbs back to previous highs. Now, this might not be immediately. It might take, you know, months. It might take years, which maybe by that time the capacity will still be there. But, you know, if we flip a switch like that and we bring production back online, we're going to be flaring a lot again. I love this. The fact that, what, pipelines are presenting preventing flaring? You'd think that's what the environmentalists would want, but still, there's plenty of protests in the Permian saying, well, I put it on my LinkedIn the other day. There was a picture of a lady that said, pipeline and nuclear energy are not clean or green, but it's preventing a lot of carbon dioxide from being flared right into the atmosphere. So carbon dioxide, methane, you know, they're saying- VOCs. Exactly. So it's one of those things that, you know, you you can never really please everyone, but kind of like we said, it's good news for now. Um, but 
as we've seen in many other areas, it's it's just step one. You know, Tavis, we've talked about this before. There's a lot of cool things that they're doing out there to try and limit flaring. Like we've talked about before, mining for cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if, you know, protesters continue to shut down pipeline opportunities and we are forced to reduce flaring, I mean, we're going to have to come up with new opportunities. But it's that's one of those kind of where you're beating your head against the wall and there's no real you know, process forward. Yeah, you say force, but I think we're going to have to look at it as a soft compromise. There you go. All of these recent regulation and policy changes were instituted for the right reasons, to ensure adequate public and environmental health and safety. Unfortunately, some decisions have the consequences of making it much harder to operate in the United States. When additional regulations lead to incremental costs that hamper the success of businesses, companies may choose to take their business elsewhere. Furthermore, Many states have begun to create policies that have started to push the industry out of their state. California, for example, has seen some crazy regulatory and policy changes over the years, which have severely limited oil and gas activities in the state. Colorado, on the other hand, has decided to leave oil and gas ballot initiatives off statewide ballots through 2022 to allow for current initiatives to take full effect. Since oil and gas regulations are determined at the state level, it is ultimately up to the state residents to decide how to regulate the industry. What many individuals do not realize is that their state and municipal budgets are largely supported by the local oil and gas industry. If policies become too extreme, production may become uneconomic and will dry up much-needed state revenue. Luckily, in recent weeks, steps have been taken in the right direction to ensure adequate public and environmental health and safety while ensuring the success of domestic oil and gas companies. The Trump administration has recommended rolling off some of the Obama-era EPA standards on methane emissions. The standards are not being eliminated, but the plan is to loosen up crippling emissions standards that have raised OPEX prices immensely since they were introduced five years ago. Some major companies have spoken out against the weakening of methane regulations, while smaller, independent oil companies are expected to applaud the rule as a welcome measure of relief when they are struggling to stay afloat. This is one example showing how government entities can review policies to decide if compromises should be made that will support businesses and revenue without completely repealing environmental oversight. In order to reduce U.S. reliance on foreign fossil fuels and support the domestic economy, new policies must not unnecessarily hamper the advancement of the oil and gas industry under the guise of public and environmental health and safety without foundational justification. Well, folks, that wraps up this week's episode. So make sure you leave us some comments of what you like, didn't like, want to see change, suggestions for future episodes, anything. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, so leave those reviews. Let us know. If you don't want to make public comments or want to reach out to me directly, you can do so by emailing us at podcast at rarepetro.com. So, Tavis, what do you think? What if we give out some swag if we, you know, get some suggestions? Oh, I figure we probably got a couple extra hats lying around. I'm thinking so. But anyways, like Tavis said, you know, leave us some comments. Leave us some reviews. Um, send us an email. Whatever. Just reach out to us. You know, let us know how we're doing. Um, you know, tell us how your day is. Just, you know. <laughs> We'd love to hear it. Anyways, uh, be sure to head over to our website and subscribe so you can keep to date on this podcast, you know, all the Tavis podcasts, the periodicals that we've been producing daily. You know, if you like the content of this week's periodical podcast and want to see a a little bit more figures, a little bit more in-depth analysis, be sure to head over to our website and check out the actual periodical. 
Um, and we're putting out content every week. You know, stay up to date on LinkedIn with you know all that information. So until we see you next time, take care, everyone. Sayonara. Sayonara.